What's up, Brewers fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Barrel Banter. I'm your host, Peter Go, and uh, David. We've had we had quite the guest on on here today, and uh, really, really enjoyed our conversation here with none other than former Brewer and current broadcaster Vinny Rotino. What was what was your favorite part from from today's interview with him? Probably the variety in in stories and experiences he's had. He's worked as a scout broadcaster, of course, played for a while, played for the Brewers, Wisconsin native, but also played in the WBC, played in Japan, played in Korea. He's pretty much lived a full baseball life and he's got a second career ahead of him still. So I enjoyed talking with him about all the the variety of experiences he's had. Yeah, like you said, I think he's he had almost 15 years uh, professional baseball. So he's, like you said, really, really done it all. And, and he actually told us afterwards that that he is just loving broadcasting actually even more than than in his playing days, which is uh, is really cool to be able to find that um, as a sort of follow-up career to to his professional baseball career. And uh, certainly stay tuned to the end, David. Most important question, of course, at the end of the show, David uh, fired off a, a pretty divisive question, whether it's uh, Racine or Racine. So definitely stay tuned to the end of the podcast. Uh, you got to hear hear his uh, answer on that. And along the way, lots of stories of, of his playing career and, and even thoughts on on the transition over to Pat Murphy and, and Ricky Weeks, of course, getting to play with, alongside Ricky Weeks as a brewer. So lots of fun stories from from Vinny Rotino. And, and thanks, Vinny, for taking the time to be on today's episode. So without further ado, here is our interview with none other than Vinny Rotino. We are joined today by a very special guest current broadcaster and former Brewers player, Vinny Rotino. Vinny, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I wanted to start out today by jumping in the time machine a little bit. Hopefully you're okay with that. Um, Back to September of 2007. Now, this is actually my first baseball memory, the first Brewers game I ever remember attending. And I think you might remember it. It was uh, September 29th of 2007. Brewers were playing the Padres at Miller Park. And I remember sitting with my dad, and it was a 3-2 game going into the ninth. Trevor Hoffman's coming into the game, and my dad tells me this game is basically over. Hoffman's one of the best closers to ever do it. But the Brewers end up tying it. Um, I think it was Corey Hart and Tony Gwynn Jr. who had the the game-tying rally in the ninth. And then it goes on to the 11th, and Ryan Braun leads off, gets on base. They walk Prince Fielder. I think there may have been a flyout in there. Um, and then Vinny, could you tell me what happened after that and what was going through your mind and what that experience was like? Yeah, no, I mean, those are more clear details than I have about that game. Um, so yeah, I, I had a handful of at bats that September. Um, I believe I had nine total at bats and so I, I come up. And I, uh, I have an opportunity to win this ball game. They bring in um, Joe Thatcher. So the Brewers had not had a winning season. We already knocked out of the playoffs. Um, but um, the Brewers had not had a winning season since, I believe, 1992, right? And this is 2007. So do the math on that. So 15 years of losing baseball, the Brewers, if we win that game, an opportunity to go to at at least clinch one game over 500 uh, to have a 83 and 81 season. Um, I think there's one game or two games after that game, but this would clinch a winning season for the first time since 1992. I come up, there's actually a runner on third, forget who was on third. 
at the time. Joe Thatcher comes in. Well, I caught Joe Thatcher. He's a lefty that throws a cutter. He's about 86, 89. So he doesn't throw real hard, but guys just couldn't square him up just because he had that real late breaking cutter. is deceptive. He had a low three three-quarter slot delivery. And I caught him pretty much for the first half of the season in Nashville. He was in Nashville. Uh, I'm sorry, was it 2006 he was in Nashville? He was actually a Brewers player in Nashville in 2006. He ends up over with the Padres the following year. And so I know he's throwing me a cutter. I know he, I'm going to get 90% cutters right here. Uh, so I'm looking for it first pitch. He throws it to me, and I hit a, a hard line or a hard ground ball right through the six hole. And that was uh, probably my most, um, you know, the, my coolest accomplishment as a, as a big leaguer. I, I had a walk-off hit right there for the Milwaukee Brewers, again, who hadn't had a winning season since 92. So it was a cool moment. I got, you know, everyone kind of I, I rounded first and everyone kind of ripped the jersey off. That was kind of the celebration that year uh, to rip the jerseys off of, of guys that were um, – that had a walk-off so that was a really cool moment and uh, like I said it was probably my coolest moment as a major league player is that jersey hanging behind you right now at number 10 yeah I believe so this is the away jersey I'd, uh, I'd have to look I, th I believe it was the home so I think that one's upstairs yet in uh, in storage so okay yeah what was it like to get the call in – you got the the call up in 06 for your debut and then 07 and 08. What was it like uh, initially to get called up by your hometown team, uh, but also in 07 and 08, the Brewers were – like you, you mentioned finally good again. And then in 08, especially with that playoff race, what was it like being on that team uh, during those September runs, those three years? Yeah, the, so the 06 one, that was just kind of a out-of-body experience, especially initially because, you know, you work your whole life to play major league baseball though to play professional baseball for one. And I was kind of an unlikely story. I wasn't drafted. I was a UW lacrosse graduate. So it's a division three school. Very few players come out of division three schools and actually even get to play professional baseball, let alone major league baseball. So opportunity to then play for my hometown team at that. Um, the 06 experience was just, again, just a little bit of a out of body, amazing, awesome experience. Um, I finally started to get comfortable towards the end of that experience, towards the end of, end of that September. Um, so that was awesome, getting called up, an opportunity to play a little bit at the major league level. Then the 07 season, again, um, the opportunity to get that hit, to to put the Brewers over the hump, to to become the, you know, have that first winning season for su in such a long time. That was that was awesome. And then the 08 season, I didn't get much playing time at all. I, got, I think I got one at bat. Uh, but to, to be a part of that playoff run, again, Brewers hadn't made the playoffs for a very long time. 1982, uh, they hadn't made the playoffs. So um, to be part of that and then watch, to watch CC Sabathia during that September of 08, just put the entire team on his back and just basically say, okay, everyone, just follow my lead here. And I'm going to basically pitch every time that I can pitch. Three days rest over and over and over. Um awesome to watch something I'll never forget. Was there any extra motivation playing for your hometown team compared to when you played for, uh, for a couple other teams later on in your career? Yeah. You know, playing for the Brewers was a great experience. I, I obviously a huge Brewers fan. Now I was a huge Brewers fan growing up. 
opportunity to play for the Milwaukee Brewers as a professional player, again, was, was a dream come true. And the motivation for me wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, you know, more or, or greater just because of the fact that I was playing for the Brewers. I, I would have loved to have established myself a little bit better and, and just as a major league player to be able to contribute a little bit more to the Milwaukee Brewers. If that was the case, I think I would have had a little bit more motivation to be a, a, a very good major league player. I just never really established myself um, as a player um, with the Brewers and really my entire career was kind of bouncing up and down um, from the big leagues to, to triple a. So um, I was just trying at that point in my career, I mean, my entire career, I was just trying to establish myself as a big leaguer. So it necessarily wasn't more motivation to play better or to get better. I always wanted to get better every single day. That's just how I approached the game. We'll go back a little bit to your high school days. You uh, went to high school at, was it Racine St. Cats? Yes. Uh, and then you went to lacrosse. Now there are three of us on the call right now, and I'm the only one who didn't go to lacrosse. So we'll have Peter <laughs> ask this question about your experience at lacrosse. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear Vinny, what, what your experience was at, at lacrosse. And you mentioned it already that uh, really uphill climb. I think it's an uphill climb for just about everybody to get to the big leagues, but coming from, you know, a little D3 UW lacrosse in Wisconsin, what was that like in terms of um, playing at lacrosse and then trying to climb that, that, that hill that you ultimately were able to do? Yeah. So I was actually not recruited um, really at all. Uh, coming out of high school, I was a, you know, like you said, a Racine St. Catharines graduate. So I was a pretty good player in high school. I was undersized though. I was about 140 pounds, five foot four, my, uh, as a 16 year old, I finally started to grow a little bit, but I really didn't physically mature until I was about ju a junior in college, really. So I was walking around UW lacrosse's campus and people would come up to me and be like, are you a, like a sophomore or freshman in high school taking college courses? So, I mean, <laughs> like I said, really kind of like physically not developed yet. So um, lacrosse was one of the only schools that actually did recruit me. Um, Madison Edgewood was another option. Actually, John Vodalik, the head coach of uh, the UW Whitewater Warhawks, uh, the great program that he's put together there. He was actually a head coach at Madison Edgewood for a couple of years. And so he kind of knew that I could be a good player just because he is also from Racine. He went to Racine case. And so that's why he recruited me to go to Madison Edgewood. The other option was lacrosse because again, I had a, a friend who actually set the hit record at UW lacrosse and he had graduated. He told the head coach, Mike Stewart, they, this kid could be good at some point. Again, when he, when he gets phys more physically mature, gets stronger, gets bigger. And so that's kind of how I ended up. I chose lacrosse. That's kind of how I ended up there. Um, and, and from there, I got an opportunity to play as a freshman. There was, it was a wood bat league. The WIAC was actually, actually went to wood bats for one year. Um, that was the year that Jack Tashner was, was drafted. Jack Tashner was drafted in the second round out of UW Oshkosh. UW Oshkosh had five players drafted that year. That was in 1999. Um, there are, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a, a lot of D1 schools that get that many players drafted but little old UW Oshkosh had Jack Tashner they had a couple other pitchers and a couple other position players one was Casey Kapitsky who actually played for a while in the Cubs system as a catcher he's a good defensive catcher so they had those five guys there was a couple other players actually that they got drafted one from Stevens Point and I 
and maybe two from Steve as well, but, but there was seven, seven guys drafted. So a really good baseball conference. Um, I held my own my freshman year, my sophomore year, I stunk my sophomore year. I hit 240. So I, I'm probably, there's like 20,000 major league players that have ever played major league baseball at this point <laughs> in the history of baseball. I guarantee you, I'm probably one of one of that hit 240 at a division three school their sophomore year. Um, I would have been crossed off of every algorithm at this point for, for, you know, uh, front offices draft <laughs> yeah. boards because, you know, they, they measure uh, that sophomore year is really important. I had 240. Um, like I said, I finally, I made a couple adjustments, more of a, more of a mental adjustment than anything at that point. Um, just kind of, I put a lot of pressure on myself. That was a good learning experience for me to struggle that badly um, because I, I started to, understand like what I had to do and how to stay present and not really dwell on going over four really over one if I was over one I was kind of done um I, I wanted it that bad but at the same at the same time the things that make you really good and whatever you're doing in life can also make you really bad so I was really driven so if I'd go over one or over two I was kind of cooked that day I learned how not to do that that's kind of the mental adjustment and then my junior year I really took off and then my senior year um I was runner up to player of the year in the whole country for division three baseball. So I was an all American, um, was actually told I was going to be drafted, um, draft day came and went, didn't, didn't wow. get picked. And so then I went to, I went to pharmacy school for a semester after that at UW Madison. Wow. Wow. How would you yeah. compare the, the grind of, of D three baseball compared to the minor leagues, which I know you lived, you lived both, so how would you compare that and and paint a picture of that? Because I think very few people really understand what that looks like. Yeah, it's it's a little bit different from the from the standpoint is you have a, a ton of responsibility as a college, a collegiate athlete. I mean, you have a ton of responsibility with your with your coursework. You have to make sure that you're taking care of, you know, your grades, your tests, your papers, everything like that. So that's kind of like first and foremost in your mind as a player. Yes, you're a student athlete, but um, at the time you weren't getting paid. Now I know guys are getting paid now, but, um, so, so that's kind of like, it, it's hard to juggle both. Right. But, but at the same time, you're playing on the weekends, you're playing one day a week, typically, uh, during the week. And so it's manageable and, um, you know, you just get the things done that you need to get done. You got to get in the weight room and then you got practice as well. It's, it's different from the standpoint of that, the the baseball although i felt like it was primary um but i also felt like my academic responsibilities were also primary so they were just kind of on the same level of priority for me um now when you get to pro ball that your number one priority is to play baseball which is such a cool feeling so that, that shift in your mindset is like okay this is my job now i i can really just focus 100% on this and really not that I wasn't driven in college, but really focus all of my energy on what I need to do to continue to get better on the baseball field. And so that's, that's where guys can really develop, I think. Um, and then just the everyday grind of that. I mean, you're playing every day, but I never saw it as a grind. I never saw it as a job. I loved coming to the ballpark. I, I was, I, some guys don't feel that way. And I, I would think like a decent majority, not a majority, but a decent number of guys probably feel that way about the game. Like, uh, it's a grind. Oh man, we got to play in another hundred degree game. We got to hop on the bus again and, 
you eat another terrible meal, whatever. Like <laughs> I never thought that way. I thought that every single day I had an opportunity to put the uniform on. I was lucky. Um, and so I, maybe I'm lucky from the standpoint of that, that was my mindset as well. So, cause again, I don't think that everyone felt that way. So, um, that's how I approached it and and I loved it. And I, and I never worked quote unquote worked one, one single day that I was able to put the uniform on. Did you have any doubts early on in the minor leagues? Uh, you said you were in pharmacy school. I know some, I've heard some players say that usually the ones in the minor leagues who don't make it are the ones who have other options. Um, because of course, going to pharmacy school and becoming a pharmacist is a much more stable occupation than being a baseball player, especially early on. Did you have doubts those early years, especially being an undrafted free agent? I didn't have doubts the early years. I put myself on the map pretty early in terms of prospect status with the Brewers that my second year in 2000. So I signed in 03, 2004 as a minor league player of the year. So I went from uh, too old for the level to 2004 minor league player of the year. So after that year, I really, I really hit, I, I had 124 RBIs that year. I set the franchise record for the Beloit snappers franchise. Now they're the Beloit sky carp, I believe. So I think that record still stands today, 124 ribbies, but once I hit, once I did that, I knew like, okay, I, I could be a big leaguer now. And that was kind of the first time that I actually believed that I could be a big, big leaguer after that. So I struggled in, so I got up to the big leagues in 06 and 07. Again, I still believed in 08. They, they said, okay, you're going to be the, the catcher of the future for the Brewers. I'm like, Oh, Oh my goodness. So I, I think knowing what I know now, I think I probably put a little bit too much pressure on myself. Again, I was so close to, the, this pinnacle of success for me and my personal goals, I think I did uh, uh, kind of self-sabotaged a little bit. And I had the, the worst year, and I don't think that I could handle the rigors of everyday catching. And so um, just how my body is kind of uh, I'm wound really, really tightly, and I, I really hit the wall, and I got tired that year. But, but also there's some things like mentally that I needed to overcome. And so that year I hit – I 260, I was taken off the roster, um, caught poorly. Um, so in so in 09, that following year, um, that's when I started to kind of question, you know, am I am I on the right path? Like now I'm not a prospect anymore. So so getting taken down from the from that kind of pedestal, not pedestal, but you know, not stage either, but just where I was in terms of status within the organization and within baseball circles i know i was probably asked about trades i actually know i was asked about trades a couple of times and stuff like that so to be taken down from that is like okay now where do i go and i started to doubt at that point it took most of that year in 09 to realize okay i need to snap out of this and be where my feet are use this as an opportunity to maybe you know reinvent myself okay i'm not going to catch really work hard at corner outfield and, you know, try and get faster, um, steal some bases, stuff like that. So I kind of reinvented myself. I actually signed with the Marlins that following year in 2010. Um, and then I, I did get back to the big leagues from there, but that 09 year. Yep. I did. I did doubt uh, for the first time and the only time uh, that I was on the right path. The beginning of that 2009 season, you represented Italy in the world baseball classic now, of course, the WBC has grown a lot. We saw uh, huge popularity with with the WBC this year. Um, but what made you want to represent Italy? Where does that connection come in? Obviously, you have a great Italian name, Vinny Rotino. Uh, but 
are your parents today have connections to to Italy and what was that experience like? Yeah, so I mean, growing up, my dad is from the Bronx, New York. He's one hundred percent Italian. Um, I I was always very proud of my Italian heritage uh, because I look up to my dad so much. Uh, so I'm half Italian, and he named me Vincent Antonio Rutino. So yeah, it's a it's a great Italian name. I don't I don't necessarily look like I'm Italian. I'm German and Irish as well, so that's probably more um, genetically inclined to look like, uh, you know, a German or an Irishman. Um, but, but yeah, so how, how they picked the rosters or how they were able to kind of sift through the rosters for the world baseball classic was, and this is what I heard. I, I believe that this is true, that they would look at all the 40 man rosters and see which players had a, had a name that ended in a vowel. So like an Italian sounding name. And then they would call those players to see if they had a, a uh, eligibility, I, I believe, to be eligible to play for a team not that you were born in. So, like Italy or other players were, you know, played for the Czech Republic or whatever. They had to have a great grandfather that naturalized after like 1905 or something like that. So anyway, I, so they called those guys that had Italian-sounding names and and they t wondered if they. Uh, were eligible to play and I just so happened to be eligible to play I was on the 40 man like I said I was um I was coming off that bad year but at the same time like um they needed a, a catcher uh, and so uh so it was me and Francisco Cervelli actually who is from Venezuela whose dad is also uh Italian I believe his dad is a immigrant of Italy that uh moved to Venezuela so anyway so we were the two catchers um that was one of the coolest experiences in baseball that I, that I experienced um, just because half of the team was American players or, or Venezuela players um, in the case of Francisco, but then half of the players were native Italian player players that played in the professional league over in Italy. So they have a professional league over in Italy. Uh, and so it was, it was so cool to see how much this mattered to those guys and then we all kind of joined in and really, really wanted to help uh, win for them and for the country of Italy. It was it was it was such a cool experience to see that momentum build around uh, how important it was for them. And so we all kind of followed suit. What was it like to be coached by Mike Piazza? Yeah, uh, Piazza is uh, an awesome guy. So <laughs> Mike Piazza is a uh, what not only was he a hall of fame player, but he is a hall of fame dude. I mean, this guy he is, he is uh, gregarious. He is easy going. He is easy to talk to. He'll talk to you. Like you've known him for years. I mean, he's just a great guy. Um, and so to be um, on a team that he was part of the coaching staff was really cool. Now he's the manager at the time uh, that I played. It was, um, it was um, uh, Marco. I forget his last name, but he was the, uh, he was the national uh, Italy coach for their national team and so he was he managed the the world baseball classic team but we also had Tom Treblehorn on staff he was a Brewers manager for a number of years when I grew up kind of coming of age in terms of like my baseball fandom Tom Treblehorn was the man um, and so um, to be on that team with him was cool and then also Mike Hargrove was on that coaching staff who again as a little tyke watching baseball and watching world series he was the manager of the 90s um indians ball club so 
uh, that was really cool to uh, be part of that. Uh, and a couple other names, well, Piazza, obviously, but yeah, it was just a great experience all around. So after that, you spent time with the uh, Marlins, you signed with the Marlins, Indians and Mets organizations a little bit, but then you made the decision to go play overseas. Uh, initially, you went to Japan and then to Korea. What went into the decision? Because that's a big step, obviously, to leave affiliated baseball and go to a new country that's halfway across the world. Uh, what went into that decision and and what was that experience like? Yeah, so in 2012, I finally got an opportunity to be back in the big leagues. Um, well, in 11, I got called up with the Marlins, uh, got a few at-bats, kind of a token call-up that year because I had a great year in AAA with the Marlins. But in 2012, I signed with the Mets. And Terry Collins, so Terry Collins basically told me that year, he's like, hey, look, we need you to help us win. That was the first time I really felt like a major league manager. It wasn't a September call-up. It was a, it was a call-up uh, in the middle of the season in May where, okay, we need you, we need you to help us win. I could hit, really hit left-handed pitching. Ike Davis was on the team. He was really struggling. So I actually played first base against left-handed pitchers. And so the opportunity there to, to feel like, okay, I'm now finally part of, a, of trying to help a team win in the middle of a season. That was, that was awesome. So I, I started off hot, got a little cold, taken off the roster because I, I was out of options. The Indians claimed me. So I was in AAA for the rest of the season, got called up in September. I actually got called up once before, uh, maybe in July or something, or August, with the Indians, sent back down, called back up in September. Had an opportunity maybe to show that I could be a versatile player, that I could hit lefties. Well, they took me off the roster that offseason. And at that point, David and Peter, as a player, I was 30, going into my 33-year-old season. Um, you, you're trying to get overseas. So if you're up and down, you're not established as a major league player, you're going to continue to sign minor league deals and hopefully get an opportunity to get called up. Um, and so I decided, uh, you know, I, if I have an opportunity to go to, to go to Asia, I am 100% taking it. You can make more money over there um, and you can establish yourself as a player over there in their major leagues and sign multi-year deals. And they, they pay, you know, not as good as in the major leagues, but they pay, very, very good salary. So that was kind of where I was at. Uh, and so I, I did have an opportunity to go play for the Oryx Buffaloes in Japan in 2013. Um, and I I started pulling hamstrings. I did not perform well once I got an opportunity to play at, the, at their major league team because uh, you can only have four foreign players at any time on their major league roster and they usually sign six or seven. And so they're going to go with the hot hand for former or foreign players. Um, and so ended up, ended up, uh, you know, not getting signed back by the Oryx Buffaloes signed with the next end heroes, got an opportunity luckily to play with the next end heroes the following year, continue to pull hamstrings, didn't hit enough home runs over there was two games away though, of winning the KBO world series. So that was quite the experience Hit a home run in the KBO world series. Um, that was that was a great experience as well. They chose not to sign me back. I was going into my age 35 season at that point. But it's kind of a no-brainer. If you are an up-and-down guy and you have an opportunity to play in Asia, you take it 100% of the time. What's the biggest difference in terms of the style of play between uh, Japanese or Korean baseball versus uh, American affiliated ball? 
Well, I'll say there's a bigger difference between the Japanese brand of baseball that, than there is the Korean brand of baseball. J Japan, the Japanese brand of baseball is um, the players are – well, the strategy is if you get the first guy on, you're butting them over in the first inning, okay? And that – it's more small ball there uh, for sure. So that's – probably the biggest difference but then the other big difference is just their approach to how result oriented they are which is great i love the fact that if you are producing you are going to be part of their team and you are going to have a spot in the roster you're gonna have a spot in the lineup every single night however if you hit four line drives right at the center fielder 110 mile an hour exit velos but you are 0 for 4 they they might send you down right i mean that's a little bit of an exaggeration but not that much of an exaggeration uh, contrarily if, if you hit a 48 hopper and you break your bat and it sneaks through the infield and you get a two rbi base hit single they think you are the best player on the team like there's a you know, nice batting a great great hit and, and that's just different from from how you know we're taught to play the game i mean you we are taught to hit the ball hard we are taught to have a great at bat and barrel something up kind of more focused on the process because we understand if you do that consistently the results will come that's the biggest difference between japan and and and, and american baseball but also really uh, korea korea kind of approached it the same way it's more westernized over there i think i actually think baseball was brought over by i i could be totally wrong here but i'm just speculating i think that Baseball is brought over by the American military over in Korea. And I think that that's how um, it was taught. So it is, it is more Westernized in general that the brand of baseball that you know, in the KBO, both were great experiences, loved it. Um, would have, would never change either of those experiences. It was absolutely awesome. And is it correct that in Korea, you were teammates with a young Ha Sung Kim? I, yes, I was. That is correct. 2014, he was 18 years old. He was the first round draft pick of the previous year's draft, and he was on the team for most of the year. You could see you could see the talent. Um, you couldn't necessarily see that he would be this good. Yeah, he's a good player. I mean, you could see the defense. You could see uh, the bat speed, the athleticism, um, and you know, yeah, I was I was teammates with him that year the two guys that were superstars in that league. And I thought that they were can't miss. But one was Byung Ho Kim who actually signed with who hit, who hit 50, 55 home runs that year. I mean, just an unbelievable season. He had three sixty or something like that with over a hundred RBIs. Um, Byung Ho Kim, uh, great dude. Uh, I, he ended, he ended up signing that following year with Minnesota twins. And then he he actually he was just talking about a guy who was hard on himself. He couldn't figure it out. He started struggling and got sent back. Um, so Byung Ho Kim, and then um, was it uh, uh, Jung Jung Ho Lee? I think we call I call him Jung Ho, but he um, or no Jung Ho Kang. Oh, but from the pirates. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but he actually pronounced it Gong. Uh, but he was also on that team. So talk about a team that was absolutely loaded and stacked. Um, so both those guys were on the team as well. 
So after after your stint in Korea, you came back to the U.S., uh, played in AAA with the Marlins and White Sox organizations. At what point did you realize, OK, I need to start preparing for life after baseball and maybe it's time to hang it up? Yeah, I met my wife uh, and she came along. Well, we weren't married yet, but she came along with me to New Orleans. And I kind of knew the end was coming. I was 35 years old, um, engaged to be married that following off season. Um, and so I was always a guy that never thought I would be married and play baseball, like minor league baseball for sure, while my wife was at home and family's at home. That's why I waited a long time to get married. Uh, and um, so God has a plan, believe that. So I met her at the end of my career and then realized that the end was coming near. So um, signed, did sign, we got married that offseason, signed one more year, played AAA with the White Sox. And from there, um, after that season, the, the 2015 season, I was I was having a great offensive season for the first half. I, I started to show my age in the second half. So I, I really hit a wall, started to get tired, could feel the bat getting heavier. My reaction time, that age curve thing is absolutely real. So my reaction time, I could feel it wasn't quite as sharp, wasn't quite as quick. That following year, 2016, again, started off really, really hot. Was in conversations, actually, I believe, to get called up to the big leagues with the White Sox uh, to kind of play catcher and, and kind of move all around a little bit. And, again, I hit a wall. I think I finished the year under 200. And so at that point, like, I knew I was done. 30, I wasn't going to play that age 37 season. And, Again, knowing where kind of where my body was and how I was not bouncing back. And um, again, that age curve really kind of took a toll on me. So um, I decided to just kind of retire. And uh, I, I don't regret. I never after I got done retire after I got done playing and, re, and I decided to retire. I never one day said, I want to play again. Um, I never did. I because I, I think I, I left it all out there. Um, I grinded for so long, 14 years, uh, over 5,000 at bats for sure. So, I mean, I, I, um, I just left it all out there and I played as hard as I could every single day. And I loved every single minute of it. And that's, that's why I think I have no regrets in terms of um, what I did as a player. Did you know that you wanted to go into scouting when you were finishing up your career? Cause you served as a Ranger scout for a time before getting into broadcasting. Yeah, so for four years, I was a, a, a scout with the Texas Rangers, and um, I always I always loved paying attention to all the little nuances about players. I was fascinated by the scouting world. Um, I think mostly because, like, when you are a young player and you first get signed and you're playing and you're playing first two, three years, and, and you see other players get signed for high dollar amounts and you're looking around and you're saying, how did this guy get this much money? He is absolutely terrible. Like, and, and conversely, and conversely, you see a player who, um, you know, was like a, a lower round pick that didn't sign for a lot of money. You know, Corey Hart comes to mind. Corey Hart was a, I think he signed for a hundred grand, not even 60 grand maybe. And he was like a 11th round pick. Uh, out of high school, like what a job that scout did. Um, but, you know, for every Corey Hart, there's guys that don't pan out. So it's just, it's just so fascinating to me. It always was. 
Um, I, I got a job with the Texas Rangers. I was a pro scout. So I had to cover four different organizations. So up and down throughout the organization, I wasn't an amateur scout. So I was involved in trades, players to be named later type of deals. Um, I had to scout the major league teams. Um, so I, I was responsible for the Brewers, the Cardinals, the White Sox and the Blue Jays. And I had to know every single player top down in the entire organization. So if there was ever a deal that went on with one of those ball clubs that I was there um, and, and was able to give my opinions and give my reports and talk about these players to see if they were good fits or if they weren't good fits in a trade. So absolutely loved it. Um, did that for up until the 2020 uh, COVID COVID hit. I was in spring training in 2020. Um, at that point, you know, we were, you know, not going to games world was shut down. Um, and it was a really tough job on our family as well we had two small girls at home uh we actually that sorry three we had a newborn as well so cecilia our youngest was born and so i, I decided um i was going to look for another job i had actually just got a, a regular job in sales um and so i told the rangers that i was leaving kind of blindsided them a little bit kind of it was it was with co it was just it was the best thing for our family um but um I definitely left them like they they needed coverage eventually for the trade deadline that year. Just had to do what was best for my family at that point. Um, so again, COVID was weird anyway, right? Guys were getting furloughed and stuff like that. Just there was a lot of unknowns. And again, best thing for my family. So from that sales role, friend of mine, really good friend of this day, Mike Anderson, who his brother, his brother is Brian Anderson, the voice of the Brewers, you know, Mike and I keep in touch to this day, but he said while I was working sales and was missing baseball, he was he said, you know, my brother thinks he'd be a really good broadcaster. Chance any chance you'd be interested in that? And I thought originally and initially I said absolutely not, no no possible way am I getting on camera? If you look back at some of my first shows, David and Peter, you'll you'll realize yes, I was that scared scared on camera, um, but. Uh, I, I I went for it and VA has been unbelievable along the way and um, he's helped me a, a ton as well as other people some of the producers um, you know Brett Reland, Dan Keener um, some of the other co-workers you know Stephen Watson and uh, of course Craiger, Craig Craig um have helped me along the way Rock has been unbelievable I've asked you know Bill Schroeder I've asked him a billion questions so I just continue to say yes to podcasts like this and that's how you get better at it and I absolutely love the broadcasting um, role at this point love it love talking baseball I love continuing to try and hone you know how I come across and present some of my ideas as well so uh, it's been a lot of fun so with that said we're going to ask you to put your broadcaster analyst hat on for the last uh, last little bit of the of the episode of course, the big news this offseason, probably the biggest news was council leaving for the Cubs. And there's been a lot of coverage about, you know, what went down, Craig Council, Pat Murphy. But I want to ask you, since you you played professionally for 15 years, how much impact do you think a manager can have on a on a ball club? Do you think a manager can even make or break a season? Oh, I, I absolutely believe that. Yes, I 100 percent believe that a manager is um, 
a big part of the success of the team. It's a big part of the makeup of a team, especially because in baseball, you're with a group of guys. I think it's 162 games in 180 days. Okay, so you are with the same group of guys. And and let's not forget about the six weeks of spring training. So, you know, it's eight months, seven and a half months. If you make the playoffs longer than that. So you're with the same group of guys um, in a in a relatively small, confined area. You're on the planes with them. I mean, so this is kind of like a family feel. You have to have a winning culture. It can go south really, really quick. It can get difficult to come to the ballpark if you do not have winning culture. If it's difficult to come to the ballpark, then you, you're, you're not going to play well. You just aren't. You're, well, you're not going to play as well as you are capable of playing that's for sure you're not going to play together it's an individual sport kind of right because i mean you're the only one taking the at bat you're the only one throwing the pitch you're the only one fielding the ground ball but at the same time if everyone's pulling in the same direction with that mindset of what can i do to help the team win today everyone feels that everyone feels that if everyone has that kind of mindset um and the manager facilitates that kind of culture. The manager really kind of creates it. Manager has a lot of influence over that. Players can sniff out. I mean, people in general, I would I would say that this is true about life. People in general can sniff out whether or not a person, especially a person in authority, is there to help you or if they're there for their own personal gain. You can sniff that out in five seconds, right? So players can feel that immediately when they meet a coach for the first time. Counsel, from everything that I've heard, being around him as a player as well, like he is a guy that is not that, right? He is he is there to help players improve. He's there to help the team win ball games. Now, I'm I'm not, I'm answering I've answered your question, but then I'm also expanding on it. However, I've heard the same thing about Murph. So Murph is going to facilitate that same kind of feel around the clubhouse, around these players. Um, and I've been around Murph as well a little bit, and he does definitely feel that way as well. So I think that the Brewers made a, a very savvy decision as, as much as a, of a kind of a – that was a weird week, right? I mean, when Counts left for the Cubs, uh, but a pretty savvy decision to, to go with Counts there or to go with Murph there uh, because I think there's going to be a lot of continuity uh, and maybe even more of a, a, a feel of, okay, let's, let's, let's make a run at this thing again uh, this year in the clubhouse with Murph at the helm and Ricky weeks as well. Of course, both are important, but do you think that that clubhouse management is maybe even more important than the, the in-game decisions, the bullpen management, the platoon platoon uh, pinch hits and such, you know, it, you could make an argument that it is more important. However, I'll say this. If, if you have a manager that you know is overmatched, so he could be a great clubhouse guy, but if you know that he's a little bit overmatched with in terms of the X's and O's and you, you're getting beat a little bit and you're making poor decisions over and over and over again, you're getting beat by the other manager in the opposing dugout, players feel that too, okay? So, so it is both. It is definitely both. You got to have a guy that's smart knows what he's doing with the X's and O's can kind of think managers think about three or four innings ahead. And, and that is something that if you don't have a lot of experience doing, you're going to be learning on the fly and you're going to be making mistakes, but the best managers that I have been around have a ton of experience managing baseball games 
and they are mentally drained after a game because, again, they are thinking three, four, or five innings ahead as to the matchups, as to who's coming up, you know, that big bat in the lineup that they don't want to have face the starter or they don't want to have to have face this reliever that's been down now for three days and, you know, or maybe the guy that he is going to face, he has been down for three or four days. Do we really want him to, I mean, there is so much that goes into it. It looks so easy on TV, um, but the, the X's and O's definitely matter. Maybe not quite as much as that clubhouse culture, but um, you can also lose a clubhouse with that, with a, with a manager that doesn't know what he's doing with the X's and O's. You mentioned Murph being a, a good hire. Ricky Weeks is, of course, the guy that they brought alongside Murph to be the associate manager. Did you see Weeks being a future manager when you played with him? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't know, you know, being out of the game for a little while. I know he was with, uh, I believe, USA Baseball. Uh, he got back in with them. And then last year, or last year was his second year back on the field and kind of roving around. So once you once you saw Ricky wanted to obviously get back in uniform and, and impact players' careers, you, you you thought just okay, Ricky Ricky's going to manage someday, and, and now he's got his opportunity to be the associate manager. He's going to be great. I mean, he was so passionate as a player. You talk about a player that wanted to win, played alongside uh, you know guys like you know Prince and Braun and you know that those group of players back. Um, in that era, I mean, really a good group to learn the game from. And then Ricky just has a, a depth of knowledge of the game as well. Uh, smart guy, really smart. Um, I think he's it connects with players as well, really gets commands respect of players. So uh, it's a, a really like another savvy hire by by uh, Matt Arnold and company in the front office. And I think I think Ricky's going to do a phenomenal job and eventually one day lead a ball club himself. So as we wrap up, I uh, wanted to finish with a segment we call Five and Dive, five rapid-fire questions as we end the episode. So question number one, which country did you prefer? Um, you can you can baseball or non-baseball, Japan or Korea? Ooh, that is apples to oranges. I loved them both. Um, I would say I would say Korea. Who is the best player that you played with? Uh, Prince Fielder. What is your favorite minor league road city? Minor league road city. Well, I was a, a home and road player in this city. Uh, well, actually, I was going to say Nashville as I was a home and road player, but I'm going to say Las Vegas because, you know, Las Vegas is a great city to visit for three days. <laughs> yeah, that's, that makes sense. That's that's the uh, about as long as you want to be there. <laughs> that's exactly right yeah yeah what is uh Vinny, what's the best part of being a broadcaster now oh uh, the best part about being a broadcaster is just uh that i have a, a platform to talk about baseball and give my opinions on the brewers and on the game in general and, and just talk about baseball that's the best part about it our final question this one might be the most divisive among wisconsinites brewers fans is it pronounced Racine or Racine? I, you know, I grew up always saying Racine, but I think it's actually Racine. <laughs> but we, uh, everyone from Racine says Racine. So I'm going to continue saying Racine incorrectly. You sound like a true Wisconsinite. Very accommodating. <laughs> if people say it the way that you don't, that you don't like, or you don't prefer, that's okay. Also that that's right. We're the Midwest. Nice. We're a little bit 
mm-hmm. too nice. <laughs> so you'll be back uh, as a broadcaster for the Brewers this upcoming season and continuing your work at PBR, right? Yep, that's correct. Yep, I work for Prep Baseball as well. So, yep, so get, make sure as players, high school players that want to play in college, make sure you get out and get to a showcase so we can identify you and help you along in that process. So before we let you go, Vinny, where can they find uh, people, fans, uh, audience, members that want to connect with you on social media or otherwise? How can they best connect with you? Yeah, just Twitter. It's just at Vinny Rotino. It's X. It's called X. So um, just at Vinny Rotino and then Instagram as well. I'm on there. We're doing our little funny Brewers Live videos with Craig Kishon and Stephen Watson. So I'm on Instagram as well. Same same tag or what do you call that? Same is it called a tag? <laughs> I'm not that not that good at social media. So it's at Vinny Rotino as well there for Instagram. Well, make sure to go throw Vinny a follow on social media. Watch Brewers broadcast where he'll be featured this upcoming year. Uh, Vinny really enjoyed this conversation. It was great. Learned a lot. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Great job. Thank you.